going to do a very quick recap of some of the major points from last week before we begin this week. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, my purpose is to give you a life that is full, that is complete, that is overflowing. This message about the true nature of God is directly correlated to the fullness of life that Jesus came to provide. The thesis, or the, the gist of this whole message, is that the completeness of our life that Jesus intended is reflected in our perception of the true nature of God. God's nature is Truth. We're going to talk about the grace and the truth of the goodness of God today. But as people in this world, many, many people don't perceive the fullness of who our God is. And their life is a reflection of their perception. I used this very simple example last week that atheists don't believe in God. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. He does. Their disbelief doesn't change the truth, the fact that God exists. And the same thing with perception. An incomplete perception or a misperception of the nature of God can skew us from receiving, can keep us, can prevent us from receiving the fullness of what God has for us. There were three major misperceptions that I shared last week. The first one, we talked about the grace. We've talked about the history of the grace of God from the very beginning of time when God created Adam. We talked about the, the time before the Mosaic Law was given and how God's grace was in that time, was being poured out to God's people. We looked at how the law was actually given with grace. And we looked at how Jesus was the fulfillment of the grace of God, is the fulfillment of the grace of God. But the first misperception that many Christians are facing is that they're seeing God through the Old Testament law instead of the grace of God. And much of that happens through religion, the do's, the don'ts, the regulations, the penance, the, 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 uh, the, the feelings of condemnation and un unworthiness. That's Old Testament law. We don't live there anymore. We live under grace. That's a huge misconception. The second misconception that I talked about is that many of us, because of the religion that we've lived or because of the, 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 the homes that we've lived in and the, in the way that we've been taught, we believe that we have to atone for our own sin, that we need to offer penance, that we need to, to beat ourselves into this place of, of uh, um, atonement for our own sins. Like, we have to pay for it. The truth is that it was already paid for. Jesus paid a huge price for the remission of our sins. And it's not up to us to pay for. We couldn't. But Jesus did. So that's the second big misperception. And the third big misperception is that we can work 
It's a performance mentality. Is that we can work to earn whatever. Healing. Um, answers to prayers. Performance mentality is one of the biggest things that prevents people from receiving healing. Most of us know that salvation is a free gift and that all, all, all we need to do is believe Jesus, to believe in the work that he did. The same is true for healing, but we don't understand it. And ministries like this are sometimes part of the reason because we talk about the things that we can do to help us to be stronger. Declaring God's word, reading the Bible, praising and worshiping, all of those things are really good things. But they don't get God to move. He has already moved. What those things do is help us to grow in our knowledge of God and our relationship with God. But that performance mentality is a misperception. We don't need to perform. Jesus did all of the work. So those were some big misperceptions. And I went into a lot more detail last week. So if this is just kind of um, intriguing you or making you say, I'm not sure, Cindy, about that. I want to see the Bible evidence. Go to last week's teaching. It is on the Internet. You can listen to the, the whole teaching. But today, today, the title of this session is Jesus Jesus reveals God's true nature. The law itself did not reveal the true nature of God. It did reveal a part of God's nature, but it was incomplete. The law showed mankind a part of the nature of God, that he is holy. And that no unholy thing can stand in his presence. But Jesus provided the complete picture. In John chapter 1 verse 17. Listen to this. Last week we talked about the law. And we talked about grace. And John 1 17 says... For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law was partial. partial. Jesus was the complete manifestation of the nature of God, the truth and the grace that comes through God. So our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the true nature of God must come through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and if you have your Bible, please turn there. We're going to go through lots of scripture today, lots of it. When we were preparing, Ken says, wow, this is a long teaching. <laughs> I said, it's a lot of scripture because the scripture gives us the evidence of the nature of God. So we're going to go look at the Bible. But this is a foundational scripture we're going to be reading every week. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're talking about Jesus and the importance of knowing Jesus to help us to know the nature of God. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Through what? 
through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As his divine power, the divine power of Jesus, the divine power of God, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Remember the fullness of life? We talked about it at the very beginning. The fullness of life that Jesus came to give us is a reflection of our perception, the depth of, of our perceiving, our understanding, our knowing the nature of God. And this scripture says that the divine power of God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him, through knowing the true nature of God who called us by glory and virtue. Last summer, we taught a series on our identity, who we are. And that's really, really critical, knowing who we are in Christ. But we also need to know who God is, <laughs> the true nature of God. I think that this has the potential to change, huh, to change your game in a great way. Jesus reveals God's true nature. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. The word theology means the study of God, the study of God, and God's relationship with the world. Men and women go to seminary. They go to college to learn theology, to study. Sometimes they study so much and they learn so much intellectually, they still don't know anything. They're, they know uh, it's, it's, just, it's, it's not changing their lives. They're not living the fullness of life that Jesus came to give. Jesus, studying Jesus is true theology. Because when we study Jesus, we study the nature of God. When we study Jesus, we study God's relationship with people. We see it in Jesus. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures. There's a lot of them. We're going to look at two of them. That, where the Bible literally says what I'm telling you right now. I always like to let the Bible speak, not just me. So Colossians 1, verses 15 and 19. This is what it says. Now he is the exact likeness. It's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the exact likeness of the unseen God, the visible representation of the invisible. He is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus. I love to just stop and think about that for a minute. He is the visible representation of the invisible. We can see through the accounts in the Bible, we can see how Jesus acted, how he responded. That is a picture of his father's heart. He is the exact representation of his father. And then in verse 19, for it has pleased the father that all the divine fullness, the sum total of the divine perfection, powers, and attributes 
should dwell in him permanently. So Jesus was the sum total of the divine perfection of God, the power of God, and the attributes of God. He was the sum total. If you take the nature of God and all of the attributes of God, and we're going to show you a bunch of them in Jesus today, and add them all up in this great big huge addition problem, Jesus was the sum. Jesus was the sum total of the very heart of God. So when you look at Jesus in Scripture, which is what this whole session is going to be, you see the nature of God. And if that doesn't line up, with what you think God is like, then you need to change your thinking. You need to say, okay, I choose. That's what the Bible says, that Jesus is the, is the reflection of God. So I choose to see Jesus, to see God, and to know that that's who God is to me. That's who God is for me. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, the sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God. Reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being, the brilliant light of the divine, and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence. Wow. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. The exact representation and the perfect imprint of his father's essence. So before we start reading accounts of our Jesus, I just pray right now, Father, that our hearts are open to see you through Jesus. That our hearts are open to see that as you were through Jesus, you are for us, and that it transfers into our life. The qualities that we see that we're going to talk about are you being made visible. And Father, I pray that our hearts are ready to receive all that you are, and that our perception grows, that it grows, and it grows, and we receive your benefits, all things that pertain to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what we're going to be doing is going through different biblical examples of Jesus. And with each example, I'm going to point out some of the traits of God, the true nature of God. The first account is in John chapter 8. This is about the woman caught in adultery. In this account, we're going to see how God, how God offers no condemnation. We're going to see how God forgives, how he acquits. The word acquit means that although we're guilty, although this woman was guilty, all charges were dropped. And we're going to see how God gives life. Okay, so this is John chapter 8, starting with verse 2. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, in this account, there are two sides of the story. The first one is the law. Last week, we talked about the law, and we talked about Jesus fulfilling everything that needed to be paid for. In this story, though, Jesus hadn't yet paid the price. He hadn't yet taken the stripes on his back. He hadn't yet died. But remember, Jesus is the essence of the Father God. He is the visible representation of the invisible. He shows us God's heart. And even before he had paid the price, he was showing us God's heart. In the law... She should have been stoned. That was the law. Sin kept people from being in the midst of the holy God. They couldn't be before the holy God because God was so holy. And that sin upon them prevented them from that relationship. And it had to be punished. It had to be atoned for. And the law said that the punishment was... The judgment was to be stoned to death. But Jesus had a different plan. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to go, first of all, to um, the word accusers right there. When everybody left, nobody threw a stone. Jesus asked her, he said, where are those accusers of yours? That word accusers is the Greek word kategoros. And it means The enemy. It means Satan. It means the devil. The the enemy, Satan, is like a prosecuting attorney. And Jesus is like a defense attorney. The job of the prosecuting attorney is to work for the government, to work for the law, to uphold the letter of the law. And the way that a prosecuting attorney works is that he never talks about the defendant's good points. He only shows evidence of failure and attempts to prosecute the person for the failure. That's what the law did. That's what the enemy does today. He wants to accuse us. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He wants to point out our faults. He wants to show us how bad we are. 
But we have Jesus, our defense attorney. The defense attorney is the one that stands in defense of the person. And in the case with this woman, with this adulterer, he said, I don't condemn you either. He said, go. Your sins are forgiven. He said, he, he acquitted her. The word acquit means that the charges were dropped. She deserved death, but she didn't die. She went free. This points to what Jesus was going to do for all of us. That's the benefit we have through the shed blood of Jesus. We have the acquittal. We have the no condemnation, just like he gave the woman with the adultery. We have life. And when the enemy comes and taps on our shoulder and says, oh, you're guilty. You sinned. You did. That was really bad, Cindy. Jesus is our defense attorney. And he says, yes, but it's all taken care of. I paid your debt. It's been canceled. No condemnation for you. You are free. Now go and sin no more because that's my best for you. And it won't open the door to the accuser coming back again. I'm going to show you another scripture in Romans that tells us the benefit we have through the shed blood of Jesus. This adulterous um, woman benefited from Jesus reflecting the heart and the true nature of God before Jesus had even paid the price. But now we have so much more because the work is done and we have, it's completed. We have been acquitted. So let me show you the scripture. This is Romans chapter 4. Verses 22 through 25. We actually read it last week. We're going to read it again. This piece of scripture comes right after the account of about Abraham, who, when there was no hope, when all hope was gone, he continued to hope. He continued to consider not what was going on in his body and his wife's body and their age and all that. But rather, he kept his eyes on Jesus. Not on Jesus. He kept his eyes on God. And he believed that God was fully able to carry out his promise. No matter what he saw in the natural. That's for somebody. No matter what he saw in the natural, Abraham believed God's promise. And that's where I'm going to pick up, starting in verse 22. That is why his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Right standing with God. This is before the price had been paid through the blood of Jesus. But his faith went into his bank account. <laughs> it was credited to him as righteousness. And verse 23 goes on, it says, but those words, it was credited to him, were written not for his sake alone. They were also for our sakes too. Righteousness, standing acceptable to God, will be granted and credited to us also who believe in, who trust in, adhere to, and rely on God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was betrayed and put to death because of our misdeeds, and was raised to secure our justification, our acquittal, making our account balance 
and absolving us from all guilt before God. Guys, that's the end of the story. We are absolved. We are free. We are acquitted from all guilt. Jesus paid it all. So the first piece of this true nature of God that is yours, should you choose to believe it and accept it, because, boy, you can buy the lie of condemnation. You can buy the lie of, um, I can't possibly be good enough. But that's a lie. Because we just read the truth. The truth is that we are not condemned by God. The truth is that we have been acquitted. The truth is that we are free to live. That's the truth of the grace of God. The second account I want to look at is the account of Zacchaeus. This is in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. In this, as I read it, these are, the, these are the attributes of the true nature of God that we're going to look at. We're going to see that God calls us by name. That he wants to fellowship with us. That he wants to connect with us. We're going to see that Jesus came to seek to save us. He came to seek us and save us. We were lost. He pursued us so that we could live the fullness of salvation. And we're going to see that he doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Those are all attributes we're going to see in this account, just looking at what Jesus did. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. This man Zacchaeus was the scum of the earth. Tax collectors were people from the Jewish culture who had sold out their heritage, their culture, and sold themselves to the Roman government to work for the Roman government to collect taxes. But not only did they collect taxes, they were also allowed to extort extra money for themselves. They were hungry for money. They were getting it illegally. They were getting it legally illegally, kind of. And people hated them. They were excluded from the people of God. Even though they were from the Jewish culture, they were excluded and they were lumped together with sinners and harlots and Gentiles and the people who weren't part of the the promise. They were very, very hated. This man, Zacchaeus, starting with verse 3, he sought to see who Jesus was. He had to have seen Jesus' reputation, what was going on, how Jesus was teaching how he was healing, how he had such authority. He wanted to see Jesus, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So we ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now that act in itself was showing that Zacchaeus was acting in humility. It was beneath the dignity of a wealthy man to do what he did. To get up in a tree, to climb up in a tree, to see Jesus. He was 
moving outside of his role, his status quo, because he was seeking something in Jesus. He saw something in Jesus, and he was looking. He wanted to see more, and look at what happened. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. That man was a scumbag. And Jesus called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. And then he didn't just call him by name. He wanted to eat at his house. He was connecting. That's what Jesus did. That's the true nature of God, guys. Because Jesus points us to God. God wants to connect with us. He wants to fellowship with us. And he doesn't expect us to be perfect first. Zacchaeus wasn't. And Zacchaeus responded. When Jesus called him and said, come, come down. He came down with haste. He came down immediately. He ran to, the, to Jesus. He didn't run away from Jesus. He was a sinner. He could have said, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm out of here. But he ran to Jesus. The love of God leads us to repentance. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. Let me read the next couple verses. But when the people saw what was going on, when they saw it, they all complained and said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. See, he was repenting. The love of God leads you to repentance. Jesus didn't accuse him. He didn't condemn him. He didn't call out his sins. He said, can I come to your house for dinner? Zacchaeus, and this isn't just Zacchaeus, this is you, this is me. When, when God shows us his love in the midst of our mess, it draws us to him. That's what conviction is. That's what the new covenant of grace has gifted us. Last week we looked at condemnation where we run away from God and conviction where we run to God. And that's what was happening with Zacchaeus. He was running to God. And he made choices to change his life, to pay back all that he had stolen fourfold, four times over. He was repenting. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a word. That's for us too. Today. The word today means this very day. This very day, salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus. And it's come here at Great Lakes Church. Today, salvation has come. That word salvation in the Greek, is soteria. And it means messianic salvation. Now, this 
was before Jesus had paid the price. The word Messiah, the word Christ, means the anointed and his anointing. There was a promise of the Messiah to come, and the Messiah was Jesus, but he hadn't yet completed what he came to do. So he was pointing ahead of time, saying, this is God's good plan for you, Zacchaeus, not just for you, but for all of my people. Salvation has come. Messianic, I'm, I'm the Messiah, Jesus was saying. The Messiah is here. The Messiah that your people, your prophets, have told you about for all of those centuries is here this very day. The Greek word for salvation is soteria. But the Hebrew partner word is Yeshua. That just blows me away. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. And that, his name means salvation, deliverer, and victory. Jesus said, this very day, salvation, deliverance, and victory has come to you, Zacchaeus. And that's God's word for us. That's the nature of God. He wants to connect with us. He wants to fellowship with us. But there's more. He said, Jesus said, For I have come to seek and to save the lost. The word seek means to seek in order to find, to strive after. God is pursuing us. God is seeking us in order to find us. He's not sitting back on the throne just kind of gazing over us with no intention. Mm -mm. He is seeking in order to find. He's seeking in order to, to, to capture our heart. He wants us more than we can even begin to know. He is seeking you and me, not just for the first initial moment of salvation, but to live out that salvation and the fullness of the life that Jesus came to give us. And the more we perceive that, the more we're going to see it in our lives because it moves from the spiritual realm through our, soul, through our soul, through renewing our mind into our life. Jesus came to seek and to save. And that word save is so itself. You guys know that's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. So-so. He came to seek and to so-so us. The word so-so is more than just forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So-so includes remission of sin. That means it's been eliminated from us. It includes eternal life starting from the moment you receive Jesus. It's not just after you die. From the moment you receive Jesus, you have eternal life with God, reconciled to him. So-so includes healing. There are many scriptures where the word so-so is translated healed. It includes healing. And our ministry team can explain that to you and show it to you in the word, if that's the first time you've heard that. 
Sozo includes deliverance. It includes being made whole and complete. Jesus came to seek and to sozo the lost. We were all lost. Lost means perdition. Let me read my definition. It means given over to eternal misery in hell. To perish, to be destroyed. Jesus came to seek and save us from that. And to give us everything that salvation includes. I love to tell you the rest of the story of Zacchaeus that's not in the Bible. Okay, the first part of this, this, the rest of the story, when I was uh, studying the scripture a couple years ago, God prompted me to look up the name of Zacchaeus and what it means, because names were very important then, and the meaning of names were very important. His name means pure. So I started thinking about that, and I thought, he wasn't pure. He was a really bad sinner until he encountered Jesus. And then he became what his name said. But the cool thing was that his word was prophet, his name was prophetic. He was called Zacchaeus all of those years when he was a, a loser, when he was a sinner, when he was a p- terrible person. He was called pure every time somebody said his name. And then he became pure. And then this is the other part of the story that's based on history. And you can research this yourself. You can Google it. You can look it up. Zacchaeus, his name was also Matthias. And he was the 13th apostle. There were 12 apostles. Judas committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus. And in the first book of Acts, or the second, it talks about them wanting to replace that, that 12th apostle. There were two men that they were considering, and they drew straws, and Matthias was the one that became the 12th apostle, and that is Zacchaeus. History also says that he went to be a teacher of the gospel, and he was a leader over many um, other um, teachers of the gospel. So he grew into this powerful ambassador for Christ. And he lived out the prophecy in his name. Isn't that cool? And the other nugget that I love to share, just because it oh, blesses me tremendously, and that is the same day that I was doing this study, and I looked that stuff up, and I was just just being wowed by what God was showing me. He prompted me to look up my name, and I did. I never had looked up what my name meant. My name, my given name is Cindy. It's not Cynthia. And I looked up my name, and the meaning of my name is bringer of light. Yeah. So for 43 years, I wasn't even saved. For 43 years, I was living completely on my own without God. And I certainly wasn't a bringer of light. But that was a prophecy that was spoken over me every time somebody said my name. 
And that prophecy, needless to say, has come to pass. Because that's my whole life, is bringing the light of Jesus every chance I get. So let's look at the nature of God. Let's review it again in this, in this scripture. God calls us all by name. He called me Cindy. He had my mom and dad name me Cindy. Cindy Lou, actually. <laughs> it's really bad. It's really good now. I love my name now. At least the Cindy part. Yes, he calls us by name. He wants to connect with us. He wants to fellowship with us. And just like Zacchaeus, he wasn't qualified at all. But God called him anyway. And then he qualified him. And he does that with us too. You don't have to be qualified. God calls you. And then he qualifies you. He qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. You don't have to be all clean and all perfect and all have your ducks in a row. Oh, no. He calls you and then he qualifies you. That's the true nature of God and that's true for you. The next account that I want to share is about Matthew, the Apostle Matthew. This is Matthew 9, chap or chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So in this account, we're going to see how God... The nature of God is to give us his acceptance. The nature of God is that his love is the power that we need. There is power in his love, and we are accepted, and we are included. Okay, let's read the scripture. I, I find it interesting that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And in his account, he writes about when he was called to be an apostle. It's like his biography, his testimony. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Yep, another tax collector. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus didn't go to the Pharisees. And the scribes. He didn't go to the leaders and the rabbis in the synagogue. He went to the sinners. And he called them to be his apostles. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, here he is again eating with sinners. As he was eating, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So where I really want to focus now is this line that says, I go and learn what this means. I don't desire sacrifice, but mercy. The sacrifice... That, that Jesus refers to here. It's okay. That's Jerry's phone. <laughs> okay. The sacrifice refers to the Old Testament law. It was part of the system of the law, the sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system had the emphasis on 
the power of sin and exclusion. The, the law system focused on the power of sin and exclusion. Jesus said, I don't desire that. I don't desire sacrifice. I have a better way. I desire mercy. Mercy is part of the New Testament of grace. Mercy means that we do not get what we deserve. Like that adulterous woman. She didn't get what she deserved. According to the law, she deserved to be stoned. She didn't get what she deserved. She got mercy. This New Testament of grace has a different emphasis. The emphasis is no longer on the power of sin and exclusion. The New Testament of grace, the power is the love of God. And acceptance. Matthew was accepted. Matthew was included. And when Jesus was questioned about why he was eating with sinners, he was including, he was being showing mercy, he was being inclusive. It was his love, it was the power of his love. And like I've already said, love leads us to repentance. Those apostles changed. They let go of what they were living and what they were doing and their old way of life, and they turned to Jesus. His power of love drew them to him, and it does the same thing with us. That's the true nature of God. If we choose to accept it, because we can choose the old one. We can choose to live under the law. If we do, Jesus died in vain. It says that in Galatians. If we choose to still be under the law, then the, the benefit of what Jesus died for, we're not even taking advantage of. The truth, Nate, the true, the truth, the true nature of God and his grace is that he gives us the power of his love and acceptance. So if you feel like you're not worthy, if you feel like you're not accepted, if you feel like you're off somewhere, not able to fellowship with God, that is a lie. And my heart and God's heart is that you let go of that lie and you receive the truth that you are accepted, that you are loved, and that the power of God's love is all you need to help you to move away from whatever it is that you feel like you are not worthy of and just let go of that and, and move into a different direction like Zacchaeus did, like Matthew did, like the adulteress did, the adulterous woman Okay, we've got a couple more uh, accounts. These are just little nuggets that I'm going to share, and then we're going to close. Turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus touched the untouchable. You might feel untouchable for whatever reason. This person was untouchable because of disease, it was contagious. 
And in that time, lepers, people stayed far away from them. It was a very contagious disease. And the law said that they had to be separated, excluded. But grace says that they are included. And part of the scripture that I love is about healing. I look at this and I see God's will to heal. Because the leper said, if you are willing. How many of us have, has, has, how many of us have said something like that? God, I know you can, but is it your will for me? Are you willing for me to be healed? Jesus answered your question right here. He said, yes, I am willing. Now, if that's not enough evidence, there are 23 accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus healed individual people with individual needs. 23 times. And there was not one where he said no. In addition, there are 17 more accounts where Jesus healed everybody who was in need of healing in a mass or a multitude of people. Jesus is the perfect reflection of his father's heart. When he walked on this earth, he healed everybody in need. That is the father's heart. That shows us the true nature of God, that it is God's will to heal. We go through that concept in depth during our um, healing Bible study, which we're going to be starting in March. The next scripture that I want to look at is about a character in the Bible, in Mary Magdalene. God loved the unlovable. The truth about God that I believe this shows us is that God's love is unconditional. It's not dependent on our holiness or our lack of holiness. We can be really super strong Christians and that does not earn us God's love. He loves us like crazy, but it's not because of us being super, superstar Christians. And the opposite is true. We can be the worst sinners, and God loves us just as much. His love is constant. His love is unconditional. And these scriptures just point to that. Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, one of, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So I want to point, I'm going to read three different scriptures about Mary Magdalene. I want to point to this woman for a second. And I wish there was more depth in the scripture about her, but there isn't. So um, what it does say is that she was delivered of seven demons. I can kind of picture a, a person who is demonically possessed or oppressed or whatever you want to call it being really messed up. I, I don't know that, but I'm, I'm just presuming that. And Jesus healed her. Her life had to have been completely changed. Because, and you'll see it through the next two scriptures as well as this one, because she chose to give up her substance 
She provided for Jesus from her substance, along with these other women. So she was with Jesus and his disciples, going with them, caring, helping them, taking care of them. The next scripture I want to read is John chapter 19, verse 25. And this scripture takes place at Jesus' crucifixion. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That same woman was at the cross. There were only three that were named in the Bible, and she was one of them. And the third scripture is Mark chapter 16, verse 9, and this is Jesus' resurrection. Now when he rose early, that's when he resurrected, when he was resurrected on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. The first person that he was shown that was shown that he was alive again, that he wasn't dead, he was risen. The first person was Mary Magdalene. The one who had been delivered of seven demons. Jesus loved the unlovable. We don't have to be perfect for him to love us. He loves us. No matter where we're at, no matter what we've done. And the last piece of of. Of the last picture that I want to paint of the true nature of God today is that he had a heart he has a heart of compassion and Jesus shows us that because Jesus represents his father he is the visible representation of the invisible and this compassion this compassion results in the hand of God taking care of us meeting our needs, answering our prayers because of his compassion for us. And we see that in scripture. The definition of compassion, according to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, Noah Webster was the father of American Christian education. And this is a good dictionary to refer to when you want to look in a dictionary for a biblical word. And the word compassionate means having a temper or disposition to pity, Inclined to show mercy, merciful, having a heart that is tender and easily moved by the distresses, sufferings, wants, and infirmities of others. God is compassionate. In Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36, this is a picture of the compassion of God. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on those who, were un- who didn't know, who didn't understand. He wanted the sheep to be, to come home, to be found, to be saved. The next scripture is Matthew 14. And in this scripture, he had just heard about the death of John the Baptist. And he went out by himself into solitude. He was grieving. John the Baptist was the one who, who had been 
prophesied to come and prepare the way for him. It was his cousin. And he had just found out that he had been beheaded. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So in the middle of his grief, in the middle of what he was going through, he was moved with compassion, and he put his needs aside and healed the sick. In the next scripture, Matthew 15, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So the heart of compassion, he made the choice to, to believe God for a miracle of multiplication of the bread and fishes because of compassion. That heartfelt mercy, that heartfelt tenderness, he said, okay, what are we going to do? I'm going to go to my God and believe him to take care of this. And the, the hand of God was accessed through the heart of God, through the compassion of God. All of these examples, healing, teaching, feeding, were all stirred by compassion. That's the true nature of God. Matthew 20, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes would be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes were opened and they received their sight and they followed him. And the final example, and there are many. When I looked up this word compassion in the concordance, there were many, many scriptures where it showed the compassion and heart of Jesus. I just picked a few of them. And this is the last one I'm going to read. Luke 7, verses 12 through 15. When he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. He rose the, the boy from the dead, and the mother didn't even go to him and ask him. He, his, his heart of compassion just poured out. And that compassion is directly connected to the hand of God. Compassion is powerful, the compassion of our God. He cares so very much. And when we come to him, we read it in Psalms so often where people are just crying out, where David or, or the psalmist is crying out to the Father, crying out to God. And their cries are heard. The compassion of God reaches, reaches them and meets 
the need. And he does us too. (laughs) And he does us too.